You're listening to the oneofus.net podcast network. Oneofus.net and all of the shows on it are 100% subscriber supported. Please consider becoming a subscriber to oneofus.net. Keep the site and all of our great shows going and get some terrific bonus content as well. Digital noise is not going anywhere in this post-apocalyptic time. Or wait, I guess it's current apocalyptic. Is there a word that's like, is it just apocalyptic? Uh, See, post and pre, if we're in it, it may just be apocalyptic. Okay. I was, you know, it feels like it needs something there, but I guess not. I guess we're just so used to films and entertainment that are either right before or right after. (laughs) Yeah, I think we're in the thick of it. Okay, fair enough. We're in a in a Nucci political television show. Good to mm-hmm. know. Uh, sorry, that was a really obscure BBC joke. <laughs> Joining me this week is John Golson from afar. Oh my gosh! When I'm afar, I'm not Sir anymore. I don't think you've called. I don't think you've. I don't think you've said my name without the Sir at the beginning and like well, for a, that's a year or so. Yeah, I've totally forgot. It's just because I'm not seeing you. When I see you, I immediately, you can tell. It's because just titles don't mean anything in this new world. <laughs> you must earn your title. Yeah. <laughs> Fancy man. Or what is it that Tina Turner calls Mel Gibson in uh, Beyond Thunderdome? Oh, gosh, I can't remember. I don't know. What is with me in obscure referencing today? Today. <laughs> but we have a lot of titles to talk about here on our home release show. Yes, believe it or not, they are still putting out Blu-rays and DVDs and what have you. Although most of this stuff you can also just buy uh, the digital version of as well. And that now, now they've because they at first when they first started doing this with digital codes, they weren't even they weren't putting bonus features on with the digital codes, and people were like, "What the fuck, dude? Why would I get that?" for the same price instead of just buying the hard copy. So now they do, even though I found that the bulk of them, they still have this thing where you, you have to literally scroll to the end of the movie to get to the, <laughs> the extra features instead of having like some sort of chapter select thing or something. Oh, weird. It's, yeah. But some of them are now addressing this. It depends on your, where you're, you know, what the format is they're doing it through. But anyway, we're talking about the Blu-ray versions and we're going to start off with one that uh, I reviewed in the theater. So I will let, John take the lead on Richard Jewell, which is the new Clint Eastwood film that came out to some amount of both celebration and controversy. Yeah. So in the early nineties, um, you know, depending on how young you are listening to the, to the program, um, there was a, uh, there was a plot to bomb the Olympics in Atlanta and in the search for a likely suspect, uh, the media kind of immediately latched onto the security guard um, who had brought the attention to the bomb. Uh, and you know, they saved they they saved as many people as as possible, tried to get everybody to safety, that sort of thing. But they because he had kind of a he was kind of the whistleblower. It kind of put a put him in the catbird seat, to use an old phrase. Hmm. Um, and that and that guy's Richard Jewell. I actually I gotta say. I was not um, was not wanting to see this at all, mostly because of the reviews that I'd read painted possibly a sharper political picture. I actually don't think it's a very political movie. I think it's really a case of this guy 
who sort of um, – because I don't think it I – I think that Richard Jewell as a character is almost like Forrest Gumpian. He sort of just happens to be the wrong guy at the wrong place at the wrong time. Mm. Um, he's very much um, – he's like a wannabe – uh, you, you meet these kind of guys that sort of like are obsessed with authority, um, you know, want to be cops and want to be FBI agents and all that kind of stuff. And he kind of fits that bill, um, you know, and, and I don't think the movie portrayed him as necessarily noble or heroic in the way that some of the reviews I read said that they did. And, and I also don't think that the media was, the media is sort of the antagonist. The FBI also sort of act as the antagonist. And I know that those are two big targets of our, our current president, not a big fan of the media or the FBI. Um, but I felt like this was a light enough wrap on the wrist. And also it's true. So <laughs> it happened. So you can't really like, it could have been a far uglier, far more politically motivated movie. Um, and I think that the actual true story is interesting enough to carry the movie, even if there's not, um, even if the movie's not like great. It's not like, you know, it's not five star great. It's not 10 out of 10. Yeah. I mean, it's, I think it's one of the better, uh, films just taken. Like if you take any other context out of it, the political contest I, text, I, it is an entertaining film. It is an interesting film. The controversy stems from something. And I do agree with this. They went to extraordinary levels to try and get every detail of this dead on, even to like filming in the exact location and, and rebuilding the like uh, the building at the exact location where it really happened, like everything down to the tiniest little detail, trying very hard with the actor to be dead on with his relationship with his mom, played wonderfully by Kathy Bates here. Mm. And I do definitely like a full shout out to the actor uh, who is playing Richard Jewell here, Paul Walton. Walter Hauser, who's best known as a comedian, uh, stand-up comedian, but he's obviously making his move into drama. The problem is, is the two characters that are dealt with all but completely fallaciously are the FBI agent and the journalist. They just whole hog make up shit, which they've defended as being, oh, it was for dramatic purposes. They're the only characters that they make up for anything for to add drama to the film. Uh. And that's really troublesome, especially with, uh, you know, the reporter who is seducing an FBI agent, which apparently nothing like that ever happened, <laughs> like at all. And yeah. that's a that's a huge deal for a film that is presenting itself as as being, you know, the true story of Richard Jewell in this day and age to make that up, uh, to present her as and him as this amoral characters and then to have her have this inexplicable change of heart in the third act out of nowhere that does not sell. It is troublesome to me. Um, and it's a shame because I think otherwise this is a pretty good film. But even if you don't know that about these two characters, there is something about them the whole time that is so one dimensional and like mustache twirly that it's hard to, it's hard not to see something's wrong here. Yeah. I just expected so much worse. I think, I think my expectations for it were so low and so, uh, keyed in to not enjoy it that yeah. uh, I think the <laughs> I think the fact that I found it perfectly passable drama um, was was like a big surprise. Uh, you know, it's not I, it's it's not great. It just was one of those movies that you have those occasionally where you're like, uh, I do not want to see that, and then when you see it, you're like, okay, well, fine. I was 
I may have had a, <laughs> a stick up my ass, but um, I was that way with Richard Joel, and and it was a completely. I thought it was a completely passable uh, drama. Most of the time, it is indeed pretty innocuous, and it is a well made film overall. There is uh, a. Making of Richard Jewell for about seven minutes, which is just a pretty straightforward EPK with interviews with the cast and crew members. And then there's six and a half minutes of the real story of Richard Jewell starring most of the same people, uh, but also the the real life Bobby Jewell and Watson Bryant to talk further about the events in the film. Um, I mean, obviously, this isn't a huge amount of bonus features to make this worth watching. Uh, it's sort of half-assed. But like I said, this film did not come out to universal acclaim. Uh, it was certainly nominated for some things in some critic circles, but I don't think it ever really went a heck of a lot past that. I think it actually straightforward just skipped the awareness oh, of lots of people. It was very – it was positioned like Oscar bait. And as far as Oscar bait goes, it's it's – it's very middling for Oscar bait, but it's a damn sight better than some of Eastwood's other attempts at Oscar bait, like uh, J. Edgar and stuff like that. Like Or, or uh, Afterlife. Yeah. Which was terrible. <laughs> In fact, I'm trying to think the last... I mean, I enjoy The Mule. I thought I, I did enjoy The Mule. I enjoyed watching it. It's not a great movie, but I enjoyed watching it. But I think his last, like, just straight up just a great film was... Uh, uh, what's the one with um, Hillary Swank? Oh, Million Dollar Baby. Million Dollar Baby. I mean, he made other films I've enjoyed since then to various and lesser degrees, but that's the last film I'd go, okay, that's 100% a truly great film. Yeah. Uh, also on the Oscar bait category that most people weren't even aware it ever came out, but this one I'm more on like, okay, you should see it, is Just Mercy. Mm-hmm. This is a legal drama film, and as such, it's not stretching real far past what you expect from a legal drama film, but it is doing it, even though it's going through all the things you expect it to do to some extent, it's doing it incredibly well. And it is kind of an important story. But like I said, I've reviewed this one as well uh, on highly suspect reviews. So I'm going to once again, hand this over to John. Oh gosh. Um, Okay. Let me uh, (laughs) do it. (laughs) Let me see if I can, I don't know that I can draw up the details that are needed because this again is a real life story. And I saw this um, a while back. I also saw this at the time that it came out in theaters. Um, so for me, it's it's I'm going to lose all the details. I do know that it's about uh, a young lawyer played by Michael B. Jordan who is defending a man wrongfully accused of murder, played by Jamie Foxx in, um, gosh, is it like Alabama or Mississippi? It's Alabama. It's, it's Alabama. Alabama, yeah. Um, I feel like I'm on a quiz show. <laughs> what was the, what <laughs> Should was I the make a timer or something? No, Should that's okay. Dun, dun, dun. No, I think we, I think we have it in the broad strokes. I mean, we, you, you basically learn that it's very hard for, and and, you know, if you listen to uh, or watch a lot of true crime uh, docu stuff, um, there's there's a sense in minority communities that they they just don't talk to the authorities. Um, yeah, it, it, you know they they. It's it's not a matter of not snitching. It's a matter of like not trying to bring unwarranted trouble into the neighborhoods and communities and things like that. And there's a big part of this movie that um, you know that that plays into that, where people are trying to kind of like keep to themselves and mind their own business and and not talk to anybody about what was really going on, um, in the hopes I think that it would all just kind of go away. But when somebody's on death row and their life is on the line, it becomes you know much a much much bigger issue, and and people have a greater impetus than to talk. And and also you know Michael B. Jordan's lawyer uh, gains the trust of the community, and he starts finding out information as well that um, 
that helps serve his, serve his case. Uh, this was really good and a throwback in a way to, you know, we used to get legal thrillers all the time as big summer blockbusters. Like yep. Grisham movies came out once a summer, like for almost the entirety of the 90s. And we don't really get those anymore. And so in a way, this is kind of a, I felt like it was a throwback to those kind of movies. It's star studded. Uh, Brie Larson is also in it. Who else is in this thing? Jamie um, Foxx. Yeah. Tim, Tim Blake, Blake Nelson. Nelson. Yeah. It's, it's star studded. It ha- it hits all the beats that you expect from a legal thriller. Um, and then to know that it's based on something that really happened um, also heightens the drama in a very, uh, in a very specific way that a fictional story just wouldn't do. Um I I really really liked this. I don't know if it was, and, and you're right, it was positioned as kind of Oscar baity. I don't know if it was uh, at the right movie for awards season. It, it a play for awards um, felt a little beyond its reach because it is it does kind of follow the tropes. It does follow the genre beats. It doesn't really break the mold, but it follows the mold exceptionally well. Um, and I I really liked Just Mercy. Uh, I did too. Uh, I, I was. This is a movie I remember where they they had just sent out a digital link for it for review at Oscar season to Austin Film Critics Association folks, and I remember going, "This does not look like one of the ones that's going to actually win anything." I mean, I don't mind a good uh, uh, Oscar. Um, legal thriller, but when they're presenting it as as at Oscar time, I go, well, there's a good chance this is going to be super dry, and it's not. It actually does. It feels more like one of those Grishamy type thrillers in some ways because uh, it is very dramatic and exciting. I'd be surprised. I'd be interested to know specifically what the the what the differences are dramatically that they created here to to make this into a film as opposed to the real story. But regardless, everyone is really good in here. Jordan is great. Jamie Jamie Foxx is great. Uh, O'Shea Jackson Jr. has a fun little side role as one of the other prisoners on Death Row that I really liked uh, as well. And uh, Rafe Spall as the prosecuting attorney is good. This is a it's a solid, engaging movie that isn't quite up to the it's going to win any or even be nominated for anything at Oscar time. But it really deserves an audience, too, because it It does, you know, it, it kind of because it was positioned for Oscars and didn't didn't set that on fire. It really, you know, in the rear view should have been positioned for, for better box office. And it could have, I feel like it could have, should have been a hit and it wasn't because it wasn't how they wanted to market it. Um, But it really deserves eyeballs because I do think it is a good, really solid, really gripping uh, courtroom thriller. Yeah, totally agree. Uh, There's not a lot of bonus features. There's few EPKs. The really the only really interesting one is is the Equal Just, Justice Initiative, which is the group that he was there sort of founding, basically, uh, with Brie Larson's character. Is the the real life version of that is the longest feature, about eight minutes. There's uh, 14 minutes of deleted scenes that are you know interchangeable to some degree with what they actually included in the film. Nothing really super special, but I do say that like if you have not seen this. I think regardless of what your angle is, where you're coming from on as a film fan, I think this is something to appeal to everyone. It's a, it's an engaging, dramatic th- thriller. Uh, it does not get overstuck in either the triacliness or the, or, uh, ridiculous dra- dramatic movements. It's, it's good. Well, let's move on to our next one going way back here, uh, to the far flung year of 1996 and director Robert Altman, who also co-wrote this film, Kansas City. Now, I have watched 
probably about half of Altman's films, and he's made a lot of films. Mm-hmm. I've certainly not watched everything. No, I've not even watched all the, the ones considered to be, oh, you must see it, Altman films. And I find that of the ones I have seen, I'm kind of 50-50 with the movies I really like to the ones I'm like, I just don't get it. Kansas City is going to come to somewhere in between those two for me. Um, it There's something about it that just feels... I don't know, non-studio film, kind of cheap, almost even direct-to-DVD at points. And maybe it's just because, like, Jennifer Jason Lee in 1996, who was not exactly, like, at the height of her, the peak of her career at that point, and, uh, um, uh, what's his name, uh, who plays her her boyfriend, Dermot, Dermot Mulroney, who they've consistently tried to make into a A-list star, and it's never really worked out with. But the story here, it's 1934, Kansas City. Uh, Jennifer Jason Leigh, who's playing a very fast-talking, petty thief, uh, you know, she's like a, almost doing the uh, mid-Atlantic dialect, but not quite. She, her husband is is uh, Dermot Mulroney, Johnny O'Hara, and he's been taken prisoner by Harry Bafonte, Belafonte, who is this gangster called Seldom Seen, being held at a club because he basically ripped the guy, the guy's soldiers off and then was caught. Uh, so Blondie, Jennifer Jason Lee's character, in response, kidnaps the wife of a local politician, uh, played, I think, really charmingly by Miranda Richardson, who is an addict to opium, like laudanum, which is like a liquid form of it, and has her own shit going on. And her idea is she's going to blackmail the politician into helping to free uh, her husband from this gangster so he doesn't die, or she says she will kill this politician's wife. And the movie is very (laughs) Altman-esque. It's a lot of just sort of conversational, almost like fly-on-the-wall stuff going on there's a lot of just non-essential shit happening in this movie which is very like i said key to sort of altman when he's at its best and when he's at his worst and i think it works to both in this particular film well let's uh, let's get this question answered right away is jennifer jason lee terrible in this movie yes or no I kept asking myself that exact same question the entire time I was watching this. There's something about playing this type of a character where she's playing it very heightened. And I'm like, she's obviously been told to go for this heightened type performance. Does that in and of itself feel ridiculous enough that it's impossible to distinguish that from whether or not she's actually doing a good job at doing that? I don't know, but it did come off as laughable. I think for a while, I this is this is where I've kind of settled on it because at first I was like, she's really good, and then by the end I was like, she might be awful in this. <laughs> and I think it's a matter of just hitting the same note too often, too many times. That her character behaves the same way, gives the same like like kind of fast talking speeches and things like that to the point where it begins to grate. And I, and maybe that's intentional. Maybe you're supposed, it's supposed to put you better in uh, Richardson's shoes, but it, it, the performance starts to lack any ups or downs. And it's just kind of like somebody on a piano going bung, bung, bung over and over <laughs> and over and over. Um, you know, she was, th- this was a phase where she was trying on a lot of accents as an actress, like yeah. Hudsucker Proxy in this movie, where she's sort of like trying different vocal tics. And it's a performance almost entirely comprised of vocal tics and a frown. 
Um, <laughs> I, I don't know. A for effort. It is a very interesting performance. Um, I will say that. But, I, but even then, the movie as a whole, I honestly was much more interested in Harry Belafonte. I thought his character was really menacing. I thought the stuff in the club is when the movie would kind of come back to life. And then, but the movie's, that's not the movie. The movie is split 50-50 between the stuff at Belafonte's club and the stuff with uh, uh, Jennifer Jason Lee and, and Richardson. Um, and, and at some point, I lost interest in the stuff that was happening with them. I lost interest in Blondie's thread. Uh, mm-hmm. I, was, I kind of was like, get, get, to, get to the point. Like, I know what's going on. And then it's just a matter of like, I, I never really felt, felt like anything was escalating. Instead, they kind of have, they introduce other characters, I guess, to kind of keep them busy. They meet a young 14 year old girl who's pregnant. Um, but it doesn't really further their story along. It's just sort of, it's just sort of stuff for them to do. Um, yeah. I, I found this, uh, I probably agree with you. I think this is like, Right down the middle, you know, and, and when it started, I actually wondered if I was about to watch some underappreciated gem that was like, oh, this is cool. It's out on Blu-ray now. Like, maybe this is like some unsung classic. And even like a little ways into it, I still held out hope and was like, there's enough stuff going on that's interesting that I hope this, I hope by the end of it that I have the same affection as I do right now. And that it did not hold that way. Um, I, 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 by the time it was, I found it kind of tiresome. By the time it was over, I was, I was kind of like, okay, good. Yeah. It's, it's definitely like one of the ones for, to remind you Altman completists out there. Oh yeah. He did this movie. <laughs> um, it's nowhere near as bad as some of his worst, Yeah, but it's not even close to the level of, you know, when he was at functioning at top form. And there's not a lot of bonus stuff that's new here, really, either, surprisingly. Um, there's an older commentary by Robert Altman. Uh, there is critic Jeff Andrews for 25 minutes on the movie, uh, but also on Altman's whole career. There's, it's, I looked him up. I can't figure out who this guy is. It says Luc Largier. It's a French guy. I think he's a critic. Uh, but there's about it's 18, 19 minutes of uh, stuff in French with English subtitles of him talking about the film. And then there's the original electronic press kits, which are, you know, the 90s versions of EPKs, real shortcut interviews with everyone behind the scenes stuff. There's all the trailers and TV spots and a small image gallery. It's okay. It's, it's, I mean, it's what Arrow Academy does, which is the people releasing this Arrow and their Academy line. It's just, oh, yeah, this was a thing. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I appreciated its eye towards period detail. I liked that. I liked that everything, I thought everything felt very authentic uh, in regards to period detail and costumes and hairstyles. Hairstyles is one where um, I feel like a lot of period movies get wrong. You'll see World War II movies where the actors that are cast, you know, they don't want to look like, they don't want to have like flat tops. They don't want to have high and tight. So they have like shaggy mops and they're in like Pearl Harbor or like wherever they are. And, uh, and I appreciated uh, – I always appreciate when I feel like the film's authenticity goes beyond the sets and beyond the cars and also into the costumes and the hair. And, and this felt authentic to me, having not lived in the time period. I mean, I'm armchair quarterbacking, but it felt authentic. Of course. Uh, well, we should – you know, if we ever get a time machine, that for sure is a time period I would like to check out with you, John. Thank you. <laughs> we'll, we'll hit the jazz clubs. 
There you go. So also from Arrow, but not from their Academy label, because I, I don't know if I recall <laughs> the passion of Darkly Noon an educational experience. Mm-hmm. Certainly. But uh, is to some people, uh, oh, yeah, I used to watch that all the time when it used to come on Showtime back in the 90s. I think I was not one of those people. This is my first experience with this film. Just the title. You're like the passion of darkly noon. Like what is this like a bad translation from like the Chinese or something? But no, this is uh director, Philip Ridley. We actually recently reviewed his first directorial film, the reflecting skin, which came out in 1990 to, I, I feel like to, to a mixed review of like, I see why people have gotten very culty about this film and why they really like it, but it's not totally for me. Uh, he has only made three films as a director, reflecting skin, the passion of darkly noon in 1995. And then 14 years later, heartless in 2009, all of which I don't think performed incredibly well, but all have this big cult following. Yeah. Uh, so now we've seen two of them. I presume someone at some point is going to send us heartless. So, you know, with this, <laughs> oh, I saw break. that at fantastic fest, like my first fantastic fest. No shit. Yeah. Well, maybe I did see it then. I don't even know. Had, I think Jim Sturgis was the actor. And it was about a guy who had this weird monster heart that would turn him into like a demon. And he would that wear like correct. a he would wear like a trench coat, and he was trying to heal his his uh, his monstrous heart. And that also has Eddie Marsan in it as well, and Timothy Spall. Hmm. Uh, but we're not reviewing that. We're reviewing the Passion of Darkly Noon, and I got to tell you, this is um, definitely feels like a, sh- a like a Showtime Skinamax film from the '90s type deal. Although I'll tell you, we forgot how. Just strikingly beautiful Ashley Judd has been, especially in her height in the 90s. There's a point when you first see her on screen here. I mean, admittedly, the the effects, the lighting, everything, the way the filter and the camera helps. But she's just like this glowing, beautiful, erotic angel. And you're like, damn, who is that? Holy shit, that's Ashley Judd. <laughs> yeah, the thing about this movie being so memorable on cable was it it was in heavy rotation uh, right after its release, and and at the time, Ashley Judd was a star, and Brendan Fraser was a star, mm-hmm. and it was really strange because you could tell that the movie was recently made, but for both of them to be in a film that like no one had heard of was jarring. Like you'd be flipping the channels and be like, "Oh, what is this?" And then you'd be like, "Wait, what? 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 <laughs> what is this? Brendan Fraser, Ashley Judd?" And you know, I was a big movie nerd, so I was reading Premiere and like all that kind of stuff in Movie Line magazine. And I was just like, "Who? Where did this movie come from?" It's just appeared yeah. on cable one day and has like <laughs> real, real name actors. It also has uh, Viggo Mortensen in it, who at the time was not a huge name actor, but would become one. Um, this this is weird. Yeah. Uh, but it's not as weird as you think it's going to be. Like, the film will do weird stuff and later rationally explains what you've seen. <laughs> Which I was like, oh, okay. Like, there's a giant shoe that's part of the thing. And later it's like, oh, that's just this. And you're like, okay. I felt like one of those films that that would be a big, like, metaphorical hallucinatory scene. But... Anyway, the idea is Brendan Fraser is playing the titular character Darkly Noon. That is his name. It comes apparently from a Bible passage, although a misattributed one, apparently. Um, He was a member of a crazy Christian cult. Uh, The cult, everybody basically got violent. His parents are dead. Everybody's dead. He's the one survivor. He wanders into the forest in North Carolina in the Appalachians, uh, meets up with a coffin transporter played by Lauren Dean. Oh, no, uh, no foreshadowing there. 
who uh, takes him to his friend, Callie, played by Ashley Judd, who lives out in this nice house in the middle of nowhere in the woods uh, and leaves darkly in her care. She nurses him back to health, which takes a little while, uh, keeps referring to her boyfriend who's not there because he just goes off on, I guess, vision quests or something wanders. Eventually, Viggo Mortensen, who is who is mute for I'm not even sure if they explained why he's mute. I can't remember. But uh, anyway, he's like, you know, eventually he's going to come back in the picture. But meanwhile, Darkly, who's dealing with the incredibly kind, but also impossible not to be aroused by, even if you are a super ultra conservative right wing Christian who's taking care of him, uh, he's falling for her. And when Vigo shows up again, things start to get dark inside of Darkly. And, you know, things are not going to work out well. Yeah, it sort of, I think with this and the other one, you start to get a picture of him making these films as almost like modern fairy tales or fables. Um, there's something about them that feels like the people are, the plotting is almost inconsequential, which is not to say that they don't have narratives, but the plotting follows almost like, and then this happens, and then this happens, and then this happens, like bedtime story logic. Mm-hmm. And I I get the idea that that's sort of what he's going for in all his movies are sort of these like dark uh, morality fairy tales. I think with this one, he kind of has like uh, the purpose of it, I think is to paint, uh, to paint a negative picture of religious fanaticism mm-hmm. um, and then just kind of carry that on through to the end. I, I was, I probably, I in, compared to reflecting skin. I probably liked reflecting skin more than this one. Uh, I thought it had more to unpack. I think this one is pretty simple in what it's uh, what it's trying to do and what it's trying to say, and and kind of does it sort of bluntly, no matter how artistic and uh, you know, dare I say, artsy fartsy the movie is. <laughs> it's and it's filmed in a, a like an early high def video that's clearly been cleaned up some, and it looks cheap in a way. You know, it does not have that. This feels like a film you would have seen in the theaters. Look to it at all. Uh, which is distracting, especially when it's Ashley Judd, who at this point, like you said, was kind of was like a, at the height of her career. What was she doing in this movie? It's it's not known, and it does. The movie just kind of moves from one thing to the next. Frazier is playing this kind of a one note, sullen sort of way, going to an inevitable place that's just aren't Christian people unpredictable and crazy. And there's nothing really interesting that happens ultimately. There's insinuations that maybe it's going to get interesting and they there's moments that it approaches surrealism but refuses to commit. I, I found this whole thing, it was like, and I'm stealing this partially, but from a, the review on Blu-ray.com written by Jeffrey Kaufman, but it made me laugh. He's like, it's like if you saw a parody of a Tennessee Williams play on The Simpsons. <laughs> <laughs> That's <laughs> pretty think- good. That's dead on. I was like, okay, yeah. It's like somebody who doesn't really, who loves Tennessee Williams, but has no real skill at writing of their own, who decided to write a very Tennessee Williams type movie. It's it's ridiculous. And I get, I think, unlike The Reflecting Skin, which I get more of that, that's a much more surreal, cerebral film than this is. I think uh, this one is probably culty more for just how absurd the whole thing is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I wouldn't even I, – I, we've kind of talked negatively about it, but I would say that um, I would still – I probably still – God, do I lean positive? I'm kind of like faced with this thing of going like, you know, 
I would I would still urge somebody to see this not great movie. <laughs> um, it's such an oddity. It's such a strange. It's such a strange movie at a strange time for these actors. I think if I think it's um, there are a lot of people that kind of like underseen horror films. It definitely skirts horror. It, I wouldn't define it as a horror film, but it certainly skirts horror, especially as it gets closer to the ending. Um, yeah. And I could see. I could see people responding to this much stronger than I did. So I don't want our, I would say, you know, in all things, see it for yourself, decide for yourself, dear listener. If you too share the passion of darkly noon, I, I suspect most will not, but sure, go ahead. <laughs> uh, there is an audio commentary by Philip Ridley. There's an isolated score track, which I did, in fact, like the score from this. Uh, there's a 20-minute American Dreams Inside the Mind of Philip Ridley, which is a like a visual essay, Ooh. which deal with the first two features mainly re- reflecting skin in this, but also a little bit with uh, Heartless. This is apparently after it had come out, or, or was about, when it was about to come out, I think is when this was filmed. Uh, there's a Eyes of Fire, which is an interview with the cinematographer. Sharp Cuts, an interview with the editor. Four Songs, an interview with the composer. Dreaming Darkly is an archival piece with interviews with Philip Ridley, Viggo Mortensen, and Nick Bicot. I don't know how you pronounce that particular accent, Graf. Uh, unreleased demos are pieces that were done by Nick Bicot before uh, filming had started. There's three of those. Uh, there's a trailer, image gallery, and then, of course, the insert booklet. I mean, there's obviously a... a fandom for this movie i remember telling one guy i know that i had seen it i i had it and he was like oh i used to watch this all like over and over again on on showtime or cinemax or whatever it was and i i used to love this movie i'm like i never even heard of it i must have only had hbo well we're gonna move on to a title you did not get to see and i normally would have in different times i would have made a point of passing it on to you but i was like you know I don't think this movie's reinventing the wheel and John's missing out on a whole lot by not seeing the Chinese film, The Captain. I mean, it's directed by Andrew Lau, a very experienced actor, director, producer, cinematographer, uh, who's done a lot of great films. This movie, you know, sometimes people accuse Chinese films of being, on occasion, nothing but just straight up propaganda, government produced propaganda. Mm-hmm. Well, this is one you just can't miss that. <laughs> now that's not to say it's not in its way kind of exciting it's really interesting that it's actually pretty dead on for what actually happened the real story of this plane that took off they were dealing with storms on the way and but they everything was fine at first but then there was a fault in the windshield and the entire windshield in the front of the airplane exploded out the co-pilot who was still attached to his chair by part of his seatbelt, but was halfway out the window for like an hour they couldn't pull him back in because of the air pressure difference which can you imagine jesus uh, and them dealing with like, okay, there's only one way out of this. We're going to run out of fuel. We can't go too high because of the window open. People will like die from lack of oxygen. Uh, <laughs> and we can't go through the storm, but I guess we're going to have to go through the storm. And it's on paper, very exciting, but it, there's something about the whole thing that is so look how great Chinese pilots and people who work for our airlines are there's just no one more reliable and likable than and trustworthy than people who work for chinese airlines if you're flying a chinese airline you know that no matter what happens you are going to be safe because you're dealing with just the best people in the world and the film likes to hammer that home there is literally 35 minutes 
I'm more than that slightly. I don't remember exactly. I'm approximating 35 minutes of post the movie is over scenes of just them all congratulating each other and people thanking them. I'm not even, I, I was just like, are you fucking kidding me? This is still happening. <laughs> Everyone's like, that was great. You did great. I'm sorry. I ever doubted you type sequences. Okay. There's not a lot of exploration of who these people are. Uh, the closest thing I can compare it to is Sully, but that's a considerably better film. I just found this whole thing. Like I said, it just felt like a weird sort of propaganda. It's interesting to know this true story and it is indeed very well shot and the effects are really good, but for Chinese movies of which there's always a lot of good ones that do come out. And right now, weirdly, they're kind of having a moment with animation, but we'll talk about that later. Uh, this is not hardly essential. Uh, you can pick it up on Blu-ray now. There's no extra features except the trailers. But The Captain is, you know, I mean, if you're one of those, I got to see everything that comes out of Asia right now, sure. It's not terrible. It's not really great either. But we'll move on to the next thing, which is a old classic. Talk about films that you remember fondly from growing up with because you watched them a hundred times. Arrow Video is putting out 16 Candles. I got to wonder how much that cost them because 16 Candles is for my money and my generation was like an all-time classic. We watched this John Hughes film, which someone I would argue is the movie that made John Hughes a name, more of a household name. Uh, following this up with The Breakfast Club, which was originally supposed to come out first, apparently, interestingly, or be made first, uh, he ended up doing this one, which was a monster success for him in 1984. And this is following a string of successes with him as a writer, including writing um, uh, National Lampoon's Vacation. But this coming-of-age comedy film, in some ways, very much subverted Everything that was going on with sort of the the sex comedy, uh, rom romantic comedy, coming of age films that had happened up until this point, and in other ways, it's surprisingly kind of conservative still. But I I don't I can't. Is there anyone who hasn't seen Sixteen Candles, John? Oh, I'm sure. I'm sure there are. I'm sure there are. There were there were people. There are people who are 45 now that were born in the year 2010. Did you know that? Um, <laughs> I'm just kidding. I, uh, I, you know, I, the, the thing about, I always think of the Marvel stuff and how, like, if a kid was like 10 and saw Iron Man, he's like 22 now. That's yeah. insane to me. Um, so yes, I, I'm going to assume there are people who haven't seen 16 Candles because the other thing is that on Twitter, anytime somebody new watches 16 Candles, they go, oh, this is rapey. <laughs> um, and yes, it's rapey because teen sex comedies were rapey, um, because consent was a, not something that was a, a, uh, a priority of male, uh, <laughs> comedy film writers. It was yeah. about how can I, um, can I make a peephole in the bathroom wall? It was about how can I get a telescope up to my window so I can see her boobs um, and you know, and that's very much a horny teenage perspective. Um, is it, is it right? No, it's not right. I don't think anybody would say that it's right. Um, but were teenage boys, uh, thirsty for the hint of the merest boob? Yes. And I think, um, thanks to online pornography, they can now get that at the click of a button. 
They don't, <laughs> they don't have to, uh, you know, sneak, sneak peeks of anybody. I remember the first time I ever saw, uh, and, uh, this is like a personal story. The first time I ever saw a nude woman was I was over at my friend's house and his teenage sister dropped her towel coming out of the shower and went, whoops. And we all turned around and it was like, whoa. <laughs> and, and that story though, but that story was like, Hey, listen to this. One time I was over at Steven's house and his sister dropped her towel and we were like, wow, you know, and you, and I told that story for years and years because you get the teenage dude thing, right? Like it's, yeah. Yeah. And it's not society has moved on. Yes. And we're all, uh, we're all more learned. We're not any less horny. It's just, <laughs> it's just, I think seeking that stuff has become way, 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 way more accessible than it used to be. And the conversation has changed as well. Um, I still think 16 Candles does right by Samantha. If it doesn't do right by all of the characters, it does, it does pretty right by Samantha. Played um, by Molly Ringwald. Played play by Molly Ringwald. It's her 16th birthday. She's super excited about it. And she wakes up and nothing at all seems to be going her way. Her family is all wrapped up in her sister's wedding. Um, the, uh, the nerdy boy played by Anthony Michael Hall is trying to convince all his friends that he's messed around with her. Um, and there's a new foreign exchange student living in the house. That's that stuff is just straight up racist. I have no excuse for that. Um, but the, um, you know, so she's not having the greatest time. I think, I think the film gives her agency. I think the film gives her a perspective. Uh, I think it's, it's, um, I actually like, this one more than I like Pretty in Pink. Um, oh, me too. Which I think is kind of a, you know, it's sort of a rubber sole wide album kind of a thing. I think it's kind of a line in the sand. Um, but yeah, I, I like it. And I think if, I think if she wasn't such a well-formed character that a lot of the more abrasive aspects of this film, including uh, drugging a woman to have sex with her or having a Chinese stereotype as a live in, exchange student, I think some of that stuff would be even uglier if it weren't carried through um, with with Samantha, not just from a from a writing and filmmaking standpoint, but from a performance standpoint as well. If she didn't feel fully formed, if the film didn't feel like an offshoot of her own personal um, experience, I think it would be, you know, it feels honest, um, even, well, even well, despite its uh, ugliness. Well, you know, what's odd is that about this film at the time was it, they didn't do movies like this from the female's perspective. It was always a teenage boy. Uh, and that was odd in and of itself. And you're right. She is, despite being in the John Hughes said at this time, she's basically me at that age. If she like was what I picture, what I might have been like if I was a woman, uh, for whatever that's worth. So, I mean, he's writing it. You can only bring what you know, I guess, to some extent to it. But even the stuff that's, like I said, rapey, and there is some amount of uncomfortable, the film at least resolves a lot of it to the point of like, okay, we want you to like these characters, so it never goes where another movie might have taken it, you Mm -hmm. know? Um, Even with Jake, uh, uh, or sorry, Ted, who is uh, the geeky freshman, Anthony Michael Hall's character, who is giving what is really for a kid his age a remarkably assured performance. Yeah. <laughs> like he is out there of him. Like, look, I'm farmer. Ted is his nickname for himself. Uh, he just pretends he's great. And he's very funny in the movie. Uh, the biggest weakness in the film to me has always been, you know, the, the hunk Jake played by Michael Shuffling, who largely retired from acting after like one or two other movies completely. 
who is I love in one extra on here called him uh oh god, what do they call him? Uh like like improbably chiseled. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> but he doesn't have a lot of skill as an actor, but he's doesn't also I mean, he's in a lot of scenes, but even so, most of the time, his job is just to kind of be the reception of what other people are are having happen. So it's not that big a deal. He's a little bit flat because everybody else in this is great. I mean, even although you're like, God, this is racist with uh, Long Duck Dong, played by longtime uh, uh, character actor Giddy Watanabe. And you're going, this is uncomfortable, but it is also kind of funny. There's a scene we used to quote all the time where Jake comes to the door and they're, uh, he's saying, well, where's Samantha? Molly's character is like, she got married. Hey, married? Yes, married. And this happens like four times and like the door's closed and he goes, Jake goes to himself, married. Long Duck Dong says, yeah, married. Jeez. We used to, for some reason, quote that all the time. I have no idea why. <laughs> Also, as like early appearances by Brian Dole Murray, Jamie Gertz, John Cusack, Joan Cusack. Uh, there's a lot of familiar faces in the background. Uh, Zelda Rubenstein <laughs> plays organist, for whatever that's worth. I don't remember seeing her in there. But <laughs> I think the big thing here is that Arrow has put together the prettiest and best uh, version of this film that exists right now. It is a really excellently upgraded film. And there's... A lot of small interview, new interviews is with the, that are great. Uh, they give you a very different perspective on John Hughes and this film in the context of today. Uh, there's an interview with the casting director, with actor John Kapalos, who plays the, the, the husband-to-be of Samantha's sister. Uh, and Adam Rifkin, who himself is a mediocre director in his own right, but has made quite a few movies, but got his start literally on this film as an extra, and then asked John Hughes, is it okay if I come in when it's not my day and just shadow you? And he says, yeah, sure. He's like, John Hughes is the one who taught me how to be a filmmaker, which is interesting. Uh, interview with the camera operator, and then with the music composer, the legendary Iron Newborn. But the best two things here, there's a chat between uh, Getty Watanabe and Deborah Pollock, who played his like tall, big-breasted jockey girlfriend oh, yeah. in the film, who's like one of the only characters in the whole movie who's female and is completely in control of their own sexuality, <laughs> interestingly enough. But they have this great time. Obviously, they've stayed in touch and are friends, and they have a great time talking. But the thing that really sells this for me, there's a 17-minute breakdown uh, from uh, Soraya Roberts that takes a look of looking at this film under the modern microscope of feminism that's fascinating and it's doing it no like we love this film but let's look honestly at what was happening why it was happening and what it means and it's really fascinating and well worth watching but yeah still a classic i think despite it's you know not as problematic as like say revenge of the nerds movies but you know problematic nonetheless sequences you would agree i agree Okay, much more problematic, also from the 90s, is Elvira, Mistress of the Dark, 1988's attempt to make Elvira, a horror TV hostess, into a feature film star by playing just Elvira, her Cassandra Peterson, playing basically that character if she quit her job as a horror hostess and then found out that she had... uh, is the beneficiary of her deceased great-aunt in Massachusetts... 
And so she wants to go there because if the inheritance includes money, she can use it to start a show in Vegas. And she goes there and she finds out she's gotten largely everything at this big dilapidated mansion, her pet poodle Algonquin and a recipe book. And of course there's a bad guy uh, who is like, Hey, I'll uh, pay you gladly 50 bucks for that book. And she's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll find it eventually. But of course, great aunt was a witch She's genetically a witch. The book is not a regular recipe book. Uh, the whole town is very conservative and hates her, except for weird bohunk guy who, for some reason, really immediately falls for her, much to the chagrin of a local restaurateur who likes him as well. This is just a collection of look how big Elvira's boobs are jokes, pretty much with a loose assemblage of a plot written around it. And it's not very good. I... I... Put a lot of that on the director. I think it's I. This is a this is a bad fun movie um, to me. But I think that it could have been so much better. And I and I last time I watched it, I couldn't help but start to think about like comparing it to Pee Wee's Big Adventure, where you have this other thing that's like this person's outsized alter ego and what that film delivers versus what this film delivers. And there's like a gulf of quality difference between Pee-wee's Big Adventure and Elvira, Mistress of the Dark. And it's it's kind of a shame that she didn't find a director who clicked with her material in the way that Pee-wee did with Tim Burton. Because I feel like there's a lot of ingredients here. There's a little bit of like horror movie weirdness and like monster stuff. There's all of her like Mae West style sexual innuendos and puns. A lot of winking to the camera. Um, there's a lot to like, but I think the whole is not as imaginative as it needs to be for what's going on in this movie. It's it's very like um, you know, it feels it feels low rank, it feels low budget, it feels low priority. It doesn't feel like anybody was bringing anything to the table other than Cassandra Peterson as Elvira. Yeah. Um, and and that's a real shame because I, I I wish that there I wish Elvira Mistress of the Dark was her Pee Wee's Big Adventure and instead it's sort of like slightly worse than Big Top Pee Wee. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, and th- th- this director did like Superfly. He did Easy Money. He just wasn't a visual stylist. He wasn't somebody who'd ever you know. I I think she needed somebody like Tim Burton who'd worked in animation or cartoons or maybe had an affection for monster movies. Something more than than what's going on here. I do, though, like this movie. I just don't think it's a great movie. And, uh, does that make sense? You, you have these movies that you kind of grow up with, and you watch like every five or six years, and when you go back to them, you have a, a little bit more perspective, and your opinions kind of like morph and change, but it still is like a movie that you... You, you don't fall out of affection for it. And I think that's where I am with Elvira. I wouldn't, I, I would not disagree with you. I don't think it's a good movie, but I like it. Okay. Yeah. I think I would have had to have seen this when I was younger, like you're describing and have had some degree of like growing affection of the years. This is my first time seeing this. Oh, wow. I think I saw the second one at some point. Uh, they made another one, uh, Elvira's haunted Hills, which generally is considered to be better, but I couldn't tell you. Cause if I did see it, I don't really remember Th- this. I, I don't know. It just Elvira, the whole Elvira thing. I've always found kind of, and even the general in general horror punny horror host thing. I've <clears throat> has never been a big thing for me. I know it is for a lot of people, and maybe that's part of it. I'm like, okay, I just kind of find all this annoying. Um, and there's a lot of like, oh, I grabbed Elvira's boobs, and her 
kind of fast talking them back. I mean, you're right. It's a Mae West thing completely. I just didn't find it very engaging. I can watch this and go, there's nothing. It's not terrible, but it's really done with the least amount of possible effort at the same time. Uh, Believe it or not, there's an hour and 37 minute making a feature on here. (laughs) Holy crap. I know it's, it's an older one, but they say they completely revised it with new stuff added to it. Okay. Uh, there's recipe for terror, the creation of the pot monster. There's a very, feels like something Tim Burton would have done much better like monster in it. That's 22 minutes long. That's also listed as newly revised. Uh, there's a bunch of image galleries, the trailers. There is a minute long director's intro, which is just the director having trouble saying his intro and there's no real reason to watch it at all. And there's three different audio commentaries. And then uh, of course the insert booklet and reversible uh, cover. This is arrow. If this was a movie that meant something to you, this is as good a version of it. That's ever going to come out. I'd safely say, I would say so. Cause even, even the version I have, which is like an anchor Bay version was not loaded. So, Hmm. Uh, so next up, we're moving to Korea, which is certainly having its moment right now. And this is this 2018 South Korean mystery action film called The Witch Part One, The Subversion. Although now with the Blu-ray release, they're just calling it The Witch, The Subversion. I don't know if that means there's not going to be a part two. Uh, I Googled it. There seems to be things from several months ago I've seen on forums that say they announced that the production was just moved back, but it's still happening unclear i saw this at fantastic fest went wow that took a while to get where it wanted to go but once it got there it was a lot of fun this is superhero horror is the best thing i can think to describe of it like this is like extreme superhero horror but from korea's point of view (laughs) and i think if that sounds appealing to you and this is directed by park hung jung who uh wrote i saw the devil which is one of the i think masterpieces of korean horror cinema i think this is a good movie that is way longer than it needs to be uh it's this girl who escapes from a government facility we see in the beginning of it uh we're not sure what's happening but there's complete chaos she's taken in by an old farmer couple even though she doesn't know who she is or her age, but then it flashes to, she's a high school student. She's popular. She, uh, well, somewhat popular. She has a very close friend at the very least. Uh, she decides to enter a nationally televised audition, uh, for a sh- television show, reality show for like, you know, she's got talent type of thing to win the prize, help her family out who's struggling. But as soon as she does her appearance on TV, where she does like a bit of magic, which we find out later, people start appearing in her life, uh, stalking her and we basically find out that yeah she is a she has powers and is just starting to really realize that she has powers what makes this film interesting is the moment when the film decides to take everything that you are used to seeing with a character like this in a situation like this which certainly has been explored many times and adds a very dark turn to it that i was like wow that's really cool i like that they did that uh but yeah what did you think about this Oh, Chris, it's so rare that we end Disagree. up on opposite ends. Yeah, I didn't like this. Um, uh, okay. I I actually, it may have been hurt a little bit by watching Bloodshot the same week. And so I kind of had my fill of this idea of like, oh, somebody is a human weapon that the government's created. And now they're seeking their own independence while leaving a body count sort of movie. Um, I uh, it, I found it. Um, kind of plotting and then when it wasn't plotting I found it like sadistically violent 
Um, I did not enjoy this. It was very, it was very dull until it was very ugly and it was not an enjoyable time for me. I never really, I, I never really got into the action. I did appreciate, um, hearing them sing a, J, a K-pop version of Danny boy. That was a <laughs> highlight. I really enjoyed that. I really enjoyed that part. Um, but yeah, overall, I this was not uh, this was not my jam, so okay. to speak. Um, yeah, yeah. It's very very violent. Uh, it gets very bloody. There is some action as it gets into the third act, but the first two acts of this film, whereas like you said, it is that sort of like building very slowly, bit drib by drib and drab towards getting to where the story needs needs to go the big reveal that you know the, oh my god she has powers that's not all that interesting and it takes it, this movie's over two hours long and it takes way too long to get there i mean honestly that should have happened at the top of the first act and and let's go from there and have a lot more action this film was conceived of like i said from the get-go is the first part of a series and i think that's the problem because if this film had just kept going from where it ends uh, and the third act was what happens next, I think it would have been a much better film as it is. I hope if they ever get to do part two, they someone just sort of makes a compilation cut that smashes the movies together and gets rid of all the, the extra fat, because there is a lot of extra fat. But well, I do, like I said, I love the turn they do with the main character towards the end. There's some distinctively really cool stuff, but everything is very familiar here. If you've seen, you know, like you said, Bloodshot or any number of other films that this is essentially the same plot of. I think the problem with this is, is uh, you know, if it was structured. So the film opens with the uh, with an escape sequence where, like, oh, we're at the lab and somebody has escaped. And then we meet the girl and the girl doesn't know. It's a, year, a few years later and she doesn't know her own background. And mm-hmm. she, she's living with this farmer and his wife and she's kind of become their adopted daughter. And it's one of those situations where the audience knows what she doesn't know. But then it's like an hour and a half of her not knowing what the audience knows. And it's it's sort of like, I think almost, and, and the movie exists, so it doesn't do it any good for me to say this, except from a structural standpoint, I think if you remove that opening and have us just getting to meet her on the farm and knowing she's adopted and not knowing she escaped from anywhere, not knowing any of that stuff, I think that drama plays out completely differently. I think they tip their hat, they... they, they they give their hand away in the very, very beginning of the movie. And to me, that's that's kind of what robs all of that, all of the movie that's dedicated to finding out of so much drama. Yeah, no, I, I don't disagree with any of that. Uh, but let's move on to what is, I think, at least in any sort of realistic way, the worst made movie on our list this week. I'm sure you can guess what that is, John. Come to Daddy. Sorry, yeah. Aunt Timpson. No, I'm sorry. <laughs> no. <laughs> no, 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 not that. No, Verotica. Yeah, Verotica. Verotica. No, you have to say it like I, that. I know. I normally don't post when I'm watching something for digital noise uh, on my Facebook, but this one I had to say I'm watching Verotica just to see what people reacted with, and they just all lost their goddamn minds because some people have already seen digital copies of this uh, that was released digitally early on. I know people personally who paid money to get this. And why? Because Glenn Danzig wrote and directed this 
utter piece of garbage uh, that's based apparently in the origins of his own Verotic comic book, which I can't say I've read. I can only presume is horrible. Uh, this is an anthology of horror stories hosted by a, a woman named Morella, played by Caden Cross, which I assume if you're a big aficionado of strip clubs you've heard of, uh, <laughs> as with every actor in this movie. Uh, Danzig has described this as his tribute to movies like Tr- Trilogy of Chair- Terror or Bava's Black Sabbath. And I, if I was the directors of those films, I was like, don't, please, don't use me in your explanation. I don't want to be attached to this. Uh, do you want to talk about these segments here, John? Oh, I'm, I would love to talk about these segments. So you, you were so excited to get this. And I was like, really? Okay. So the film opens with its best segment. It really should have saved... Not well. Let me rephrase that because I actually think the highest quality segment is the mm-hmm. final segment. But I think that that one also has no story. Um, yeah. So the first segment is a story about uh, a woman whose heart is broken, and she. Is, I'm going to sound like an insane person when I describe the plot of this. Um, yeah. Her heart is broken, um, and she has eyeballs where her nipples should be, and when her heart is broken, um, tears come out of her breasts because that's where her eyeballs are and they splash onto a spider and her broken hearted nipple tears turn the spider. (laughs) I'm sorry. I I know. Why do you think I wanted you to do this? Um, Her, her, her nipple tears turn the spider into a man and that person becomes a rapist. Yeah. Murderous (laughs) rapist. Yeah. um, So that's the first story. Yeah. Sorry. Um, and the second story, <laughs> I can't even get through saying that stuff. I've never, like, I didn't even laugh that hard when I was watching the movie, but, like, just saying that out loud. Yeah. Oh, God. Nipple tears alone yeah. is enough okay. to break you. The second story is about um, the face, was it the face snatcher, the face collector? The killer has a name. It's like face grabber or face snatcher or something like that. Um, it's basically a serial killer who cuts other women's faces off, then puts them on and goes to a strip club, but then covers the face that she cut. (laughs) Covers the faces that she's cutting off and putting on, so none of that makes any sense. No. So she, uh, yeah, so she cuts people's faces off so she can get a job as a stripper, but then she strips with a bag over her head. Yeah. And that's so that's the second part. And then the third part is just Count Bathory. That's yeah. it. It's just Count Bathory. You you spend twenty minutes watching this actress bathe in the blood of nubile virgins, and that's the finale. Yeah. Um there's uh and it's and it's arguably I, I couldn't help but think that maybe it was filmed first. It's not that it's so much better. Because it's still very bad, but there are certain things about if you've been to film school and you know terms like breaking the line about camera placement or weird editing, stuff like that, the third segment has the most technically sound filmmaking. It's not good. Acting still all over the place. It's still an excuse to show bare breasts, which feels like the whole movie is nothing but like somebody trying to find an excuse to show women topless. I was yeah. numb. The nudity like numbed me. It was like, I didn't, I wanted people to put their shirts on by the time <laughs> it was over. Agreed. Um, but the, um, 
Yeah, but there's something about the third segment where it's like, okay, this is at least shot and stitched together properly. So I assume it was first. I mean, because somewhat. I, I assume I assume then that they either ran out of funds, or they or people walked and people went, yeah, good luck with this. And then he didn't have some of the technical hands he had for that section. That's that's my head cannon on how the third section ended up not being as wobbly as the first and God, the second section. Cause the yeah. first, cause the first section is ludicrous, absolutely ludicrous. And is really the segment to watch. If you're going to watch this at all. Um, the second one is a lot of very, very bad stripping, um, not sexy, not moving to the music. Again, it's nonsensical because the person who's the face ripper wears a bag on her head it's got a mystery plot. It's not a mystery. It's very dumb. Um, this everything this, everything you're saying is right. This is yes. it's incredibly badly filmed uh, through a lot of it. It has moments in the third se- sequence, but even that, it's got really wonky moments. The acting is of just about as low a level as you can get. I, We're talking like Ed Wood movie level yeah, acting. It's. I think he just. I. I don't know how they put the call out for actors. It's it may just be random strippers. It That's may, what it feels like. It may literally be he went to the strip club and said, "I'm making a movie. He wants to be in it," and then put those people in front of a camera. I, I strongly suspect that's exactly what happened. Or they were people that, because he spends a lot of time at a strip club, which I'm going to presume after seeing this movie, yeah. that they were friends of his or girls he thought were hot from said strip club or his experience at strip clubs. I mean, there's some people when looking up some of these people, I was like, okay, apparently they're a known like touring, like sort of soft core performer. Um, I, and Glenn Danzig being one of the people who knows them, but they certainly can't act. Even the male actors in here, there's two guys who play cops who are like really the worst actors in this whole thing who are in the second segment. They're so bad. It's almost amusing, but the problem is this is boring. It's not that level of like people are like describing it as like, oh, it's the horrors, the room. It really isn't. The room at least is engaging on some weird being unpredictable level and it moves along and the care, the, the actual dialogue written is so unbelievably over the top and expressed with such passion that <laughs> for how bad it is that it's fun to watch. This is just dull, man. I mean, even as a, in a, a, a titillating way, no pun intended, it's not, it, it's just kind of embarrassing. It looks like something a high school student would make. And then his parents would send him to his room. <laughs> the, uh, Obviously, Danzig was trying to crib for more European horror from the 70s, but I'm not sure that's something he understands completely either. I'll tell you this. I'm definitely giving, um, in terms of rock stars turned into directors, a lot more credit to Rob Zombie right now. Because say what you will about his films, which have been a very mixed bag, they at least look like they're made by people who know how to make movies, whereas this does not. Yeah, this is rough. This is really, really rough. I think, you know, you you kind of talk about the room comparison, and I've heard that too. But there's so much of this movie that has no dialogue. And I think part of the enjoyment of the room is some of the weird uh, the weird conversations of dialogue and things that people say. Oh, hi, Mark. Everybody knows that's from the room. And Veronica yeah. doesn't have anything like that. No. Um, it, I would say that the second and third segment, while not silent, are nearly silent. And the first segment, maybe because of the laughably bad French accents that everyone has, mm-hmm. um, and there's there's more dialogue in the first segment, but it it lacks that. It's mostly just 
it's it's very DIY bottom of the barrel amongst like I used to get these DVD sets back probably 10, 15 years ago that were like a hundred horror movies for for $15. Yeah. And they were all full of these movies that people made like almost like backyard style. Like literally DIY horror movies where people were getting their friends together to come over to the house and make these awful movies. And I, like, I don't know if you've seen Vampire Hunter or Suburban Sasquatch. Some of these uh, <laughs> films that are in these sets are just, they're just absolutely beyond. And Veronica is right at home with those. So it's amazing that it got any kind of a release at all. Yeah, I mean, it's only because Glenn Danzig made it. Oh, yeah. It's his debut. I mean, I almost suspect that despite there being a certain community of people who are picking this film up to like watch it, even if it's just hate watch it, I I'm having a hard time picturing him getting the money to do a second film. Yeah. But let's move on to another film, a festival, you know, I'd say festival favorite, but I knew just as many people who loved Come to Daddy when it played Fantastic Fest as hated it. Uh, So I went in not really knowing how I was going to feel about this Elijah Wood starring movie, but wanted to see it for myself. Uh, He plays a character named Norval. I wonder where they got that name from. Is there anyone actually named that? Or is there some in-joke? I don't know. But he is a kind of hipster musician, but not of the actually cool kind. He's got a really terrible haircut. He's very pretentious. Um, He looks like he's one of the people who are friends with the shit kids on Shit's Creek. You know, who they can't stand when they meet him again. He's up his own ass. But he's gotten a letter from his estranged father asking him to come and visit him. Uh, So he goes out to the secluded cabin overlooking a lake in Oregon. Uh, His father, played by Stephen McCaddy at first, is like, oh my God, I'm so glad you made it. But seems to not want to talk about why he's invited him there. And soon he starts to become very aggressive and starts to insult him and even threaten him. And it all comes to a head when uh, there's an accident and he has a heart attack and dies. And that's just the beginning of the weird and uncomfortable shit that Elijah Wood has to deal with in this movie that adds, of course, a big twist uh, and where you go from there. The thing is, I can't even that's just the end of the first act, but I can't really describe any further without doing spoiling what the big twist is and where it's going to go from that. But suffice it to say, this movie's trying to do a lot. I didn't feel like it accomplishes what it wants to do. Part of the reason is Elijah Wood's character is deeply unlikable in this film. And I don't know that he knew what to do with them. Elijah Wood has this natural affability as an actor. It's hard not to like him. And this character makes you not really want to not like him. He's just, he just comes across as really full shit. There's really, there's no one to root for in this movie. And at the end of it, I was like, this reminds me of something like the dark backwards where I was like, okay, I mean, you made a movie setting out to be weird and you did that, but why? Yeah, Ant is a is an acquaintance of mine. Um, the director, the director, Ant Timpson, is an acquaintance of mine. Uh, we're you know we're friendly on Facebook and that sort of thing. And uh, I think we I think from a South by Southwest we ended up sitting together and watching some movie and then talked about it after. And I, so I have an awareness of him as a as a film producer. And I also know that his taste sometimes can be a little puerile. Um, and so I braced myself for that. I think I think the movie earns all for me at least earned a lot of goodwill up front because I found it I found most of the first half of the movie really suspenseful. 
And somewhere along the line, that suspense kind of peters out, especially as it gets towards the finish. I don't think it really builds the finish well. I don't think it comes to a big, satisfying finale or conclusion. Um, But the movie had earned so much goodwill from me at that point for having such, I felt like, a really edge-of-your-seat opening for a good, sustained period of time that when things started to peter out, it was just like, it was a little disappointing, but it didn't didn't ruin the experience for me altogether. It is uh, shockingly violent. It is also very puerile, which I found, you know, which I, which I was kind of expecting. Um, I mean, it's from the producer of the greasy stranglers. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) But I, yeah, I ended up liking this. I ended up liking this. I agree with you about Elijah Wood's character. He's sort of like, I think there's, it's, it's sort of, he hasn't worked a day in his life. And, the ultimate goal is to have this kind of character be introduced to a situation where he has to do things he never imagined he'd be able to do. And you can do that with an everyman character and get the same effect because the average man hasn't had to take the life of anyone or anything like that. But they Mm. really paint a picture of him being a wannabe, um, you know, throughout the movie, you do find out he's, he's pretty wealthy and has never worked a day in his life, which is why he has this kind of hipster persona that's kind of maybe not even authentic, but it's just that he sort of wears it because he has nothing better to do. Um, none of that stuff is particularly endearing. And I thought that th- the same thing could have been accomplished um, with someone who was more of an everyman that you could relate to easier. But it, it still didn't affect what I thought was a really crackling uh, opening of the film. Hmm. Okay, yeah, I agree. It started stronger than it finished, that's for sure. Well, let's move on to the highest grossing non, uh, non-US non made animated film in the history of China, which is a Chinese made film, and the second worldwide highest grossing non-English language film of all time with a gross of over $725 million. I'm kind of shocked that up until they sent me the Blu-ray, I had never heard of Niza, which is a... CG animated, but expensively done. Uh, certainly, they, they, this uh, as opposed to a lot of other recent Chinese animated films, which were clearly cutting a lot of corners. This is one that they're really trying to get up to international standards, and on the whole, doing a pretty good job of. I mean, they even released this in IMAX format for God's sakes, and was selected as the Chinese entry for best international feature film at the 92nd Animate uh, Academy Awards. Uh, also, clearly the. Uh, First chapter, <laughs> their, their sequels plan to the point where various and multiple post-credit sequences continue on to give you teases of what might be to come. It's loosely based on a Chinese novel called Investiture of the Gods hmm. uh, that is goes back to 16th century. That's interesting but, to find. That's interesting to find that out. I'll, I'll talk about why. I didn't mean to interrupt you. I just... Well, the character Neza uh, apparently is a Chinese mythological character who's appeared in quite a few different things over the centuries. But this one is... The idea being that there's gods and there is this pearl, a chaos pearl that um, is tr- causing trouble. And these two disciples of a sort of godlike wizard are one of which is kind of like b- bumbly and incompetent. And the other is sort of like very full of himself and his abilities are sent to subdue it. Um, they end up not being able to successfully do it, but boss shows up, separates it into two separate components, a spirit pearl and a demon orb. And he places a curse on a demon orb saying in three years, it's going to be destroyed by lightning from the heavens. Right? So he says, all right, so take it 
and he chooses the fat bumbly one to be sort of like, oh, you're going to be my chosen one to do all of this, much to the chagrin of the other one, says, hey, you need to do this. Take the spirit pearl to be reincarnated as the son of this character, Li Jing, who is a rather relatively well-to-do human on Earth. And that'll all be great, and they'll be an important person, and name them Niza. That's the title. However, uh, the other character, Shen, the, 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 the officious one, steals the spirit pearl, uh, ends up accidentally infusing said kid with the demon orb. The demon, right off the bat, it's clear this kid is possessed by a demon, but not in, not in the, you know, the exorcist type standards, more like just a, a, a spirit of Loki or chaos, you know, just wants to cause trouble. But so they basically put, they beg, please don't kill our child. We'll, we believe we can make him not be demonic despite his innate inherent nature. So they put like this collar on him that limits his, his powers. They trap him in a, in a orb around their house that say, Oh, he can't leave without permission, which he regularly finds a way ways out of. But the the real question here is like, okay, so how's that going to play? Is he going to end up being good despite his nature? Um, the, on the other hand, the spirit pearl has been given by Shen to a dragon who burnt, infuses it with one of his own eggs. So the sort of like dragon god spirit fusion character comes out who's supposed to be good, but with Shen manipulating him and the dragons manipulating him. Anyway, there's a lot of shit going on here. I mean, I could go on for an hour just describing all the little subplotty stuff that I'm sure maybe it's more familiar to Chinese people who like are are, are more in uh, immersed in these mythologies that this evolves from. It's all new to me. And I watch a lot of Chinese films and I was unclear about all of this. But that being said, I think this is cute. It it, it uncomfortably goes a little bit in the direction of the the fart jokes and the, the, the type of things that the type of jokes that you can tell this is not an American animated production because inappropriate for children jokes here and there, not constantly. But once you're like, OK, that's all right. A different culture, different, different rules. But overall, I think this is a, a reasonably solid little animated wuxia film. You know, the thing that I found interesting is for for me being a comic book fan, the story of a the bad god being raised by good and the good god being raised by bad felt very familiar to me as a fan of New Gods. Sure. Um, the DC comic, I was like – so I – it's funny. That's why I said, you know, to hear that this dates back that far, I was like, oh, that's really interesting. I know, you know, like Kirby, um, I, I have no idea if Jack Kirby ever heard this, <laughs> heard this story. Um, but I found it very similar to, uh, you know, like the story of like Orion being raised by High Father on New Genesis and that sort of sure. thing. Sure. Uh, I hadn't um, even thought about that, but yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, I, you know, this is okay. Um, I found it interminably long. Um, and it, the, for a kid's movie, there is a lot of like the fart stuff, but there's also a lot of like salt problem solving with like violence and punches to the face and stuff like that. And mm. I get that it's part of the characterization, but for the, uh, for the young set to not temper that with any lessons to me of uh, sort of nonviolence, it kind of just leaves that stuff dangling as a possible solution. That if you're, <laughs> and I, I sound so preachy right now, I know, but I know how, <laughs> but I know how kids react to things and how they process things, and and I just something about the way that the 
fights and violence and stuff was treated in this felt like it was not for the age that it was quite aimed at. Um, Mm. I felt like maybe, uh, you know, maybe an older kid, somebody preteen, but then I feel like the movie's not necessarily aimed at him. I feel like it is aimed a little younger than, than preteen. I thought this was just okay. I do think the animation is gorgeous. I, I did think, so finding out that, you know, they put some real effort behind it makes sense because I did think that it was, um, you know, on par with, you know, it's not Pixar quality, but it's certainly on par with the, with a second tier, uh, Sony animated movie. Do you know what I mean? Right. Like, yeah. uh, or, you know, a DreamWorks movie that's not a uh, Minions movie, one that they're not as vested in. Um, <laughs> it was, it was certainly, it was certainly up to par with like, uh, what we expect from, from computer animated films. Uh, and I liked little things about it, but I just, again, I think I, we've talked a couple times about these long movies. To me, this one was just, like I couldn't understand why it wasn't just in and out with the story. Like it felt like it was never going to be over. Um, and <laughs> it is very long. How long is it? Is it over two hours? Oh, it's a, oh it's, see. let's see. No, it's a, it says it's 110 minutes. minutes. Yeah. Yeah. Which um, is a long thing for an animated film that's pointed at younger kids. Yeah. And also has like, there's not a lot of uh, twists and turns, ups and downs in the plot either. It, it felt really, yeah, it felt really long to me. I am, uh, I'm, I'm kind of in the middle on this one. I, uh, I was not, I was not crazy about Nisa. I'm, I'm not going to go back and revisit this film. I don't want to give you the wrong impression. Like I said, I think it is, it's impressive that they really have moved a giant step forward in terms of doing their animated films, which have previously been super half-assed. Yeah. Uh, and this is moving into, okay, this feels like an internationally releasable type, like in theaters animated film, which it, it indeed was. And I do like a lot of the story elements going on here, but there's a lot of just it taking much longer than it needs to, to get to where it go, it's going. And the fact that like, this is obviously intended from the get go to be once again, like the witch chapter one of something when you're like, wouldn't there a way to cram a lot more stuff in a shorter space or get rid of a bunch of stuff and just kind of get to the point. Uh, and it takes forever to get to where it wants to go, but it's cute and the animation's good. And overall I wasn't bored by it, but Hey, it is what it is. Did you watch the dub or subtitle? I watched the dub which I am going to defend because I, I will never watch a live action film dubbed, but I will watch animated film dub uh, dubbed because especially if it's getting like in this day and age, it used to be different. It used to be where it was just the worst people imaginable that they would have dubbed like uh, Asian animated stuff. And now they're kind of, all right, well obviously we need to up our game a little bit with better voice actors. So generally speaking, dubbed animated releases have in English have pretty good voices. And I was not at no point did I go, Oh, that was bad. It felt professional. Yeah. I thought the dub was good. And I also thought that I was, I also thought that the syncing uh, was also good. Like I never felt like it was, uh, you can see that in, in hand-drawn, uh, like on anime, sometimes if you're watching the dub that you can tell they're trying to cram a bunch of words into like two lip movements. Um, yeah. And I never felt like that was happening in uh, in this either. So I thought it was, I do think it was a high quality dub. Well, the final film in the Skywalker, uh, what do you call one of three trilogies? Is there a name for a single word that means three trilogies? I don't know. But the Skywalker saga, the ninth has come out. We've reviewed it on the site. I, 
Although being very much a defender of, I'm one of the people who's like, I think The Last Jedi is not only the best of the new trilogy, it's one of the best of the Star Wars films. I really like it a lot. And I've watched it multiple times since then, and I don't think I'm wrong at all on that, at least in terms of how how my conception. Rise of the Skywalker is not only the worst of these three films, it is one of the worst of the entire all three trilogies. And I'm even saying that it's worse than most of the prequels. Uh, I, I think maybe only Attack the Clones is, is worse in terms of story and characters, because this thing is a big mess of trying to cram too many things in it, of very ill-advised decisions of where to go with with the overarching big plot. Uh, however, it does have some nice emotional moments in it. It has some decent action in it. I just, I find this film felt like it needed another year to both write and edit. <laughs> but I've talked a lot about this online. This is the Blu-ray version, so we'll get to the extra features. But John, what do you think of Star Wars Rise of Skywalker? You know, you said that uh, they needed another year. They actually took that year and used it for the novelization because they had to write the novelization to the movie that existed, which the novelization was written to the original screenplay, which kind of got thrown out along the way and reshot and re-edited. Um, and so I don't know if you followed any of the saga of the novelization, but the novelization was supposed to be released a month before the movie and mm -hmm. it was delayed and then delayed and delayed and delayed. The movie was released, just kept being delayed and it was delayed because they had to write it to what was on screen, <laughs> like retroactively write the novelization to match what people saw because otherwise it would have been so different. Uh, people would have been like, what is this? Uh, hey, this is another bad movie. I like, Uh Oh, did I say that? Um, <laughs> I think that I think that there's a lot in this that I it's it's one of the few Star Wars films that constantly have me going wait what wait why wait how wait what and but by the end of it I was still if you were to ask me did I have a good time yeah I had a good time like I had a good time with it I think some of my least favorite things that it does I don't like the fact that it ends characters and then brings back characters and it yeah. does it multiple times and it's super cheap and gross and weird and it lacks dramatic weight. And by the time you get to like the second or third sort of uh, dramatic fake out, um, it's, it's super bad. And I don't know why it does that. I don't, I don't know why any movie would fake you out that many times. Um, there's a lot of like bullshit in it. There's a lot of sort of arbitrary, like, uh, while you weren't looking, this stuff happened. It barely makes any sense. And you have to go through this weird, like, canonical dig to support pieces of story from the film that should have been in the film. Like, a lot of sort of uh, spackle <laughs> material out there. Like, comics and things that are, like, spackling holes in the ship. Um, it is It is a mess. It is a mess that works. Now, how it works, I couldn't begin to tell you. By sheer, by sheer force of will, the, the thing that I saw on screen entertained me and delighted me while also confounding me and making me throw my hands up like I'm in the Seinfeld gif. <laughs> I, uh, yeah, I don't know. I don't know about this one. I, gosh, you know, when we did um, the New Year's, when we did the New Year's show at, at your place, it was like the hot topic. It was all I felt like anybody was talking about was was Rise of Star Skywalker, and opinions were sort of like all over the place. And I mostly stayed out of it 
Um, this is really like the first time that I've ever really voiced uh, my opinions on the movie, but it's um, it's a real mixed bag. And I'm with you there on um, Last Jedi. I do think Last Jedi is really good. And I think somehow the construction of Rise of Skywalker may make the first two films worse. Yeah. Um, and that's a, that's like the, that's pretty much the worst thing a closing chapter of a trilogy can do. Well, it takes everything that, like all the strongest stuff that works so well in Last Jedi and makes it completely superfluous. So there was just no point. So you may love Last Jedi when you see it, but when you get to the third one, you're like, okay, so that was, you made a movie entirely to prove that that movie was a waste of time. It's very strange. It's very strange. And I don't know how I, I, you know, there's a lot of rumors about the actors in it being very fed up with the final product. Boyega and Oscar Isaac have expressed their displeasure online. Um, There's heavily rumored that Abrams um, was, was pretty upset and unhappy with the stuff that was being asked because they were apparently doing a lot of, a lot of, um, they, they, from what I've heard, they kind of steered the ship uh, as the film was close to completion and then, and then rejiggered about half of it. Um, and I don't know what's true and what's not. I mean, there's yeah. a treatment that's out there that a lot of people have seen. Um, but it's, yeah, it's just a mess. I don't know. Uh, I don't know. I, I, I'm, you know, I, I own it because I own the Star Wars movies. And yeah. I don't know when I'll be in the mood to revisit it. It's sitting there, owned, in 4K. <laughs> and I'm kind of like, I don't know that I'll ever be like, hmm, let me um let me taste my patient let me test my patience for sort of breaking Star Wars lore with Rise of Skywalker again. There's a right. lot in it that I just I you know the other thing too to me for as a Star Wars fan is like I like the aliens, I like the scoundrels, I like the I like the um robots. And some people are are like they like the spaceships. They like X-wings and tie fighters and some people like Sith and and Jedi and the Force. And I am not a Sith, Jedi and Force guy. To me, that's that's not the part of Star Wars that speaks to me the most. I like funky alien planets with funky characters. That's the part of Star Wars that speaks to me the most. Um, if you give me enough of that in a Star Wars, a lot of times I'm satisfied. If you lean too heavy on the Force stuff, uh, it's it's not my favorite because I feel like it's so ill-defined. And to me, this this makes it even worse and somehow makes the other movies dumber like oh you can bring people back from the dead then why did anyone ever die in any of these movies like there's a lot of willful stupidity in this movie it calls into question so many things of just like so what exactly are the rules of this whole force thing yeah i mean it just kind of does whatever the fuck it feels like doing and which flies against previous things we've been told on multiple in multiple places i mean i'm Far from a canon queen for the Star Wars movies, but this is just at the point where it felt like a bunch of people just shrugged at it, except for the special effects people, who, as usual, both in a practical way and a digital way, are over-delivering in a fantastic fashion. I mean, it's a pretty-looking film. It's got some cool creatures in it. There's a serpent monster in here, which I learned from watching the two-hour and six-minute uh feature-length documentary that comes with the Blu-ray of the Skywalker legacy was all but completely practical. Crazy. <laughs> you know, they, they basically cleaned it up a little digitally, but that was like they built a giant practical snake with multiple actors inside of it to make it coil and move and slither. Crazy. Um, 
I'm impressed with the technical details here. I am completely almost disgusted with what they did with the story and the script. It's just awful on so many places and just lazy. No matter what J.J. Abrams says about his feelings about Ryan Johnson and The Last Jedi, it's very clear he does not like that movie because uh, this whole movie is designed to just destroy that and make that movie pointless. I just don't, I really don't care for this film, but I will say the third act is genuinely, despite building to some places that make no sense in us, us even getting there. But when you get past that, like these things make no sense. It is a very exciting sequence and it has a genuinely, some genuinely nice emotional moments there. Uh, there is, like I said, the Skywalker legacy is two hours long. I watched most of it. Uh, what's neat is it's got tons of footage you've never seen before that's been HD cleaned up, like it looks like it was just shot yesterday, from the original trilogy. So there's lots of old footage that you've never seen anywhere else that's inserted into it. Very cool. Um, and it's kind of cool the way it explores how do you make a film that's this big, this expensive, uh, but is trying to be certain things. Like in other films where it would have been like, oh, of course we're just going to do that entire effect digitally. They chose to do as much practical as they possibly could. And exploring that is really fascinating. But there was a point I was like, okay, I feel like I know as much as I need to know about the making of The Rise of Skywalker and, and, and you know, got out after a little over an hour. But that it is no question they made a solid documentary about the making of this. There is uh, a look at the speeder chase in here. It's about 14 minutes. Uh, there's six minutes aliens in the desert. They take a look at specifically shooting in Jordan, building that whole alien community there. There's Dio key to the past for five and a half minutes, um, which is exploring one of the new ships they built for this. Uh, I'm sorry, the, the not ships, the, the little alien creature that with the cone for a head, not alien creature, I'm sorry, a robot droid. Uh, Warwick and Son, Warwick Davis, who has appeared in every single one of these, I guess, is in something, is uh, since Return of the Jedi returns to play uh, the same character. There's a brief moment of of the, the Ewoks, and that's him alongside his son. And then there is the cast of creatures, which look at all the new monsters and aliens that they built for this. So, I mean, it's a super solid package of bonus features here. I'll be curious to see what other stuff with this along with the previous release blu-rays of the previous films what new stuff to expect from the brand new super mega everything 4k set that's coming out but for people who like this movie or even like john and i just kind of completists who are like i have all the others i'm gonna have this one too it's a solid package yeah it's a shame you know sometimes disney disney as a creative beast it's a shame that we'll never get like the whatever Rogue One was before Rogue One got tampered with. We'll never get Rise of Skywalker before whatever Rise of Skywalker was tampered with. You know, it, yeah. there are studios that are much more um, friendly about sort of releasing that sort of director's cut like material. And I feel like we'll, we'll never see those just by the nature that Disney just doesn't seem like the studio that releases that stuff. Well, moving from one giant franchise to another, and that's DC Comics, uh, DC streaming service has introduced several new shows. The first one they launched with was Titans. So, hey, we've already on to the second season at this point, which has come out on Blu-ray even. And Ike was one of the people that, despite seeing the trailers for it and going, man, this is so edgelordy and embarrassing looking, I ended up kind of liking the first season of Titans. I mean, it's flawed, no question about it. But it's got... Some it's got at least three quarters really solid casting. Like I genuinely really like Brenton Thwaites playing Dick Grayson, uh, who at this point is no longer Robin. He's grown up, what have you. But uh, you know, it's, you've got, 
this is sort of the core Titans, uh, the um, extraterrestrial Corianders, Empath, Rachel Roth, uh, Shapeshifter, Gar, Logan. And then also bringing in, in this season, you've got more Donna Troy, you've got Dawn Granger and Hank Hall, uh, Jason Todd is a character in here. And what's weird about this season is that the whole last season was building up to the Rachel storyline where, oh, her father is a demon and he's coming for her because she's the one person who can open the gate to let him through. And it really kind of like had this whole, okay, we finally see Trigon at the end of the first, the final episode. And this one just wraps it all up before the first episode's even halfway over. You're like, yeah, yeah, no worries. Just, it's over. We fixed it. Don't I have worry a th- about it. I have a theory about that. Okay. I think the first episode is I think the first episode of season two was intended to be the final episode of season one if it didn't get picked up. Okay. That's my theory because it, it, it even ends with everybody saying goodbye to each other. And I was like, what season one opener starts with everybody going, well, let's all go our separate ways. And I was like, that's such a weird way to start your season one that I went, it had to have been intended to be the ending if it didn't move forward. It is odd though. Yeah. Like I said, it's, it's, the whole season builds to it. And it's a cool storyline. That's always been one of the biggest storylines in the Teen Titans. that has been explored multiple times in the comic books. And to just sort of brush it off and go, oh, yeah, but what you guys really want to see is Deathstroke, who is that story is the main villain thing of, of season two. I just it, I felt like my time was wasted with the first season. You know, uh, did you I knew you hadn't watched the first season initially. and I handed you both seasons. Did you watch both? I did not get around to watching both. Here's what I did. I watched the first and last episode of season one and the first and last episode of season two. Now okay. having some working knowledge of these characters, just from being a comic book fan, I could fill in the gaps um, just based on the way that relationships and stuff like that. Like we join the end of season two and Connor Superboy Connor is a part of the show. And so I, you know, I never felt like I was lost. I kind of wondered how and where Donna Troy how they explained that or how she joined up. But that was really the only piece. Oh, I do have to say the Jericho stuff in at the, in the end of season two, I was just like, I have no idea what's going on there. (laughs) (laughs) But, um, you know, having watched like the CW shows, Supergirl and, and the flash, I think this one's got less, at least it seemed to me like less of a soap opera bent. It's a little more, it's, it's less soap opera, much more action oriented. Um, there's um there's a little bit of like uh you know those like I don't know how to describe it. There's like a certain flavor to those like shot in the Ukraine DTV action movies. <laughs> Do you yeah. know what I mean? That's just like yeah. it's a little bit it's a little bit not quite there. And and I'm not sure why, because it's I I and I'm watching it going like it's it's well shot, it's well staged. I'm not sure what's missing that gives it that feel of of sort of what slick DTV action movies feel like. But a lot of it kind of had that that sort of vibe. Um, but I, I kind of liked it more than I suspected. I dig the cast. Um, like you said, I think the cast is pretty good. I think for comic fans, it delivers a lot of... Um, it delivers a lot of play on comic book lore. I mean, that there's a lot of uh, Batman stuff going on in the at the end of the season one that carries over into season two. Um, that you know felt more. 
a lot of times the Flash and Supergirl shows don't feel like they're part of a larger DC universe. They feel like yeah. it's sort of like, this is the Supergirl universe, this is the Flash universe. And the Titans does a better job of making these characters feel like they live in a living, breathing DCU. They reference Superman offhandedly as someone who exists in their world. Um, you know, they make, if they, if they make allusions to stuff, it feels smartly threaded, not necessarily like name drops, but it feels like they're, they're talking about this or discussing this because this is the world that they live in. And this is the reality that these DC characters live in. And I appreciated that too. I thought it was pretty good. Um, having just watched the four, I, I, I didn't expect it to be something I'd be, um, you know, it's funny because I say as a comic fan, like you think, oh, it's a given that Golson would like any comic TV show ever, but it's actually I'm kind of I'm kind of a hard sell on him. And I have to say that I, I walked away after these four episodes more interested in watching the series as a whole than I was to start with. Fair enough. Well, we obviously aren't going to see each other in person for a while, so you'll have time to watch <laughs> them if you so choose. I will tell you, uh, I like I said, have the first season. Overall, I was like very forgiving of it. There were things I didn't like, but on the whole, I I was like, that wasn't bad. I want to see what happens next. The second season, however, falls into a lot of traps of just really things that happen in television shows that I can't stand. That just stick in my craw when writers do them. They're lazy. Uh, number one, they have to find an excuse to split up all the Titans, right? And they do it by this really what moment where everyone gets mad at Dick Grayson for something he did that he didn't really do. It was kind of like, well, that was not on him at all. And any even vaguely reasonable person would see that and not have this huge fit. Like I never want to talk to you again. These people are supposedly love him and think of him as family. And eventually when the show resolves it, it goes to, well, we thought about it and we realized it really wasn't your fault. Well, yeah, no shit. No one would have thought it was in the first place. <laughs> it's just ridiculous. Uh, second, taking a major character, this one actually casts Batman in it. We're like, oh, we get to see Batman, who is who is now, in this particular version, considerably older than you would expect. Played by a uh, well-known character actor, Ian Glenn, who most people know as Jorah Mormont from Game of Thrones. And has him spend most of the season acting as an imaginary Bruce Wayne, who appears to Dick Grayson and lectures him about things. I absolutely hate it when shows do that. And for no reason. It's not like he's been infected with like mind drugs or something like that. Like, or he should, like someone's making him hallucinate. No, it's like, oh, it's his conscience, which is also angry at him. I, it, it makes no sense. It's dumb. It's terrible. But the worst thing this season does is that it chooses to have uh, tragedy porn in the final episode by killing off one of the main characters in a way that makes zero fucking sense for that character. Like, Wait, why would that do that? That we everything we know about that character, that would should have just been like, I just brush it off your shoulders, you'll be fine. And that, just, oh God, I can't believe they died. This is horrible. And like everyone mourning. And I was just sitting there shaking my head, going, "This is so stupid." Was anyone paying even the slightest amount of attention to the actual who these characters are and what they're supposed to be able to do? Yeah, I I, I couldn't get over why like. You had her do that, not Superboy, who's like yeah. standing beside her. And I'm like, wait, why did she have to do that? And then I felt like it must have been a contractual obligation thing. It must have been like, oh, she's got a different show or she signed on to something else. And they're just like literally writing her off. But you have a character whose background is another place altogether. And it's like there's so many other easy outs to write somebody off, you know, that I'm like, yeah. why would you choose that one? 
And there's the whole season is just got this. It, the whole season is very depressing, quite frankly. There's all this stuff that Aqualad used to be a Titan and he died. So there's all these flashbacks. And the show does a lot of stuff where, well, I wonder what's happening. And then chooses to explain what's happening previous in the previous five or six episodes by having a complete flashback episode. Of, oh, and here's what was going on with this character while all that was going on as an entire episode so we can bring you up and now you'll understand. I also, another thing that really bugs me with television writing is doing that. That happens multiple times during the show. Uh, the thing with Jericho, who is like tied into the whole why everybody hates Dick, who's the son of Deathstroke, but doesn't know he's Deathstroke's son is let's face it. Jericho's never been a character. They really knew what to do with in the comics either. And they don't know what to do with them here. And it doesn't work. Uh, this is an awkward season. I like Deathstroke. I like the Deathstroke on CW much better, but it is what it is. I, I, I think that uh, I thought the first, I ended the first season going, yeah, I will definitely watch the second season. I ended the second season going, I don't know if I'm going to watch the third season. Hmm. Yeah. I just okay. not, not wildly pleased. There's only one bonus feature here too, which is interesting. It's called Jason Todd fate by the fans, which looks into the original thing with the character of Jason Todd who died in the comics and they, and that happened, which had never happened before, or I believe since where they put out a number where people could call and vote if Robin should live or die and the fans voted for him to die. And so that's what happened. And this sort of explores that whole period and the after effect of it in the comics. What? Why wouldn't you, I don't understand. So, the Jericho storyline is considered by fans of New Teen Titans to be like a seminal New Teen Titans storyline. Why wouldn't you get Marv Wolfman and George Perez to discuss the reaction to the Jericho storyline from the comics at the time? Like, what a gimme of a special feature for me yeah. to find out that they're talking about freaking Death of Robin, which I feel like has been explored elsewhere. To death. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so moving on to another DC adaptation title, the DC animated movies, which I know you're not a crazy oh, big fan Chris, of. Chris, just wait. Uh, has put out Superman Red Sun, which is a Mark Millar Elseworlds book, which is to say, what if things had happened differently in DC Comics? And is so many people feel like of the Elseworlds, this is the best of them. I don't agree. I do really like Mark Millar's comic. I, I think it is good, but it's a little sort of jagged. I've always felt it was a little, and then this happened, and then this happened. Uh, I went when they were adapting this going, this is going to be a hard one to adapt into an animated film with the 37th DC universe animated original movie. But I'm going to say that this version of the uh, story where Superman, instead of landing in uh, America, landed in Russia and was brought up by the Russian government, basically the Soviet Superman. I like this better than Mark Millar's comic book there. I said it. Go ahead and hate me, John. Well, Chris, do you think I liked this or didn't like this? I have no idea. I mean, I like more of the animated films than I don't, but you tend to towards not don't. So that makes it hard for me to read what you're going to like and not like with the animated. I stuff. actually liked this one. Wow. Um, okay. And Sweet. yeah, and I had kind of, I think I even told you after the last, it was like <laughs> Batman Hush. I was like, these are, <laughs> these are terrible. <laughs> I have such a hard time pushing through them. I did not with Red Sun. I have not read Red Sun. So any differences between the comic and the movie, I can't make that comparison. I do find that it has some of the problems that I have with some of the direct adaptation stuff, which is that they, they it's weird when they adapt it because they end up changing things that maybe don't necessarily need changing, but then they don't change stuff that does need changing. And one of the things that they typically don't change is that if a four issue comic is being adapted, typically each individual issue will have its own 
uh, threat and arc, and then there'll be like sort of a B storyline. When they adapt these things as screenplays, really the A, the B storyline should become the A storyline because it's the thread that continues issue to issue to issue. But what you end up with are these weird movies that feel like they could be aired on television as individual episodes. Like, okay, yeah. now we're in the Batman episode. Now we're in the Green Lantern episode. Now we're in the... And I don't understand why they still stick to sort of that issue-by-issue issue structure when they reform these things. That said, um, even though this one still felt episodic, um, I I liked this one more than typical. I thought it was interesting. Um, I thought the concept was interesting. I thought the execution was always interesting. It kind of always had me thinking the whole time I watched it, which is really rare for these animated films. I would I would honestly put this like with some of the better uh, of these DC animated movies. I've, I've only probably seen, I've, I've got, you said there were 38 of them, 37 of them. 37. Yeah. I've probably seen half. Um, so maybe that's not fair of me to say, but it's, to me, it was one of the better ones that I've seen. It is for me as well. I'm going to hold this up as one of the best ones that I've seen. Um, and partially because it is a really solid story to begin with. Malar's, conception of the story and the events that he have happened are really interesting. I feel like this has a bit of trouble getting over the fact that that is kind of jaggedly told in bits and spurts of like, you know, oh, and then this event happened and this event happened, but it does it better in that way than the comic of feeling a sense of some continuity as a story. As well, the comic constantly has like everything Lex Luthor does is like, well, he's still Lex Luthor. He's evil. We know he's doing it because of his nature. And I like that this kind of Gave him the benefit of the doubt a little bit more where it was like, you know what? It's a parallel universe. Different things happened. Lex did different things. I kind of like what they did with Lex Luthor's character considerably better here than what they did in the comic book. Uh, he's a more interesting character. Mm -hmm. uh, him and Lois are more interesting characters here than they are in the comic book. I... I think this is a lot of fun. There's a lot of... This is very... Especially if you've never read this, you're going to see a lot of stuff you're just not expecting at all. A, a lot of surprises. The stuff they do with Batman as a character who's sort of an anti-Superman, anti-fascist character in Russia is really great. I, I thought this was um, well worth seeing. There is a lot of bonus features, as you expect. Um, now, lately, they've started up again the DC Showcase, which makes me very happy when they take some much smaller characters and do give them their own sort of like 15 to 20 minute short animated movies. And this time, it's the Phantom Stranger. Lately, they've been largely taking from the Vertigo universe characters, and they're continuing on with this, uh, which is sort of a reminds me of some of those 60s and 70s uh, sort of psychedelic horror you know, where it's like, yeah. oh, and this is the son of Aleister Crowley and then a bunch of hippies who took acid. And, you know, it's that kind of thing. And it's not as good as some of the previous ones. Like, I thought the death one was terrific. Uh, this isn't terrific, but it's not bad. You know, I, I do have to give a nod to the animation overall in this package as well, because I I think I, I respond better to this sort of... Um, Justice League animated Superman animated Batman style than I do the pseudo anime stuff that some of the Batman stuff is in like hush was in almost sort of a pseudo anime. This one is much closer to like justice league, justice league unlimited in the way that it looks doesn't mimic the look of the comic, but I find that more that's an aesthetic that appeals to me more than kind of the half-assed anime aesthetic of some of the stuff that's based on like the new 52 comics and things like that. Yeah. 
I actually completely agree with you on that. Uh, there's also Cold Red War, 17-minute behind-the-scenes featurette, which looks at translating the the, the, the comics animation, looking at the real-life stuff that inspired its story during the Cold War, a lot of vintage art and what have you, uh, with a look at like the artists, some history professors, uh, DC Animation creative director Mike Carlin, uh, who has also turned into kind of a weird sort of site, kind of friend of mine lately, online, weirdly. Like when my friend Patience was dying, he sent us a stack of stuff to uh, sell to to uh, help his family, help her family. Oh, that's which really, is really great. Cool. He yeah. was he was the editor of the Superman books in the '90s when Superman books were like some of the best they've ever been. I mean, he was overseeing in, in, that whole line when they were sort of all interconnected. Yeah. There's also a motion comic that is just like the first book of Red, the original Red Sun, and it's terrible, and there's no reason to watch it. <laughs> just to put that out there. Uh, so let's move on to our final film, which was a major release at the end of this year, which was 1917, which, of course, performed considerably really well at the Golden Globes and not quite as well at the Oscars, but still respectable showing from uh, filmmaker Sam Mendes uh, teamed up with cinematographer Roger Deakins, creating a big visual war film featuring uh what is his name? George McKay as Lance Corporal William Schofield and Dean Charles Chapman as Lance Corporal Thomas Tom Blake, who are given an assignment in the middle of World War One, 1917. Shocker. Uh, where there's the German army has pulled back from a section of the front in northern France, not in retreat, but they apparently have made a strategic withdrawal, planning that, that the British would find out about this, move forward, and they're prepared to completely overwhelm them. So it's a trick. And they've just found this out. The, thing's gonna, the, the attack's going to happen in like 24 hours. So these young soldiers are ordered, you've got to run across war lines and get to the front and give them this message, do not attack before 24 hours go up. And as it is, it's this is a visual film fans movie. It's certainly not. There's nothing wrong with the script. It's just not wildly complicated. It's tropey, but not insultingly tropey. It has some nice. Uh, it has a few nice emotional moments, but it doesn't go overboard with that either. It's kind of like a series of sequences that are supposed to make you go wow from how they're filmed, which gives the illusion of one long continuous shot with the exception of one sequence in the middle where he passes out. But at least it creates rather convincingly the illusion that the camera has never stopped filming the whole time uh, through this run of never repeating a set because he's running across like, you know, France. It's impressive. Uh, there's one scene in particular with a being bombed out town with just at, at night with fires and explosions in the distance. It's just hauntingly gorgeous. Uh, I mean, it's beautiful. But people's results have indeed varied as to how they felt about this overall as a film. Because like I said, the story, such as it is, is largely serviceable to in bowing to the more visual and, and definitely audio intent and technical intents of this film. What do you think, John? So I'm going to say a couple of things to defend this, which is weird because you wouldn't think this is a movie that needs defending. But one of the things was, well, it's not really one shot. And it's like, okay, that's fine, but it's still constructed as if it's one shot. And, and that's okay. Like, <laughs> it's okay. Nobody's lying to anybody by saying it's one shot. The film yeah, they don't exists, have to prove anything. <laughs> yeah, the film exists in the space of one shot. So if that's the way that the story's told, whether or not they use digital trickery to cut is irrelevant to the fact that the film plays out as one shot. Hmm. The other thing that I heard was, well, it's so gimmicky. If you were to take that away, 
Um, the, the movie can't stand on its own. Well, guess what? That's the movie. It doesn't matter what you say because that's the movie. Like that's the way the movie is made. And so there is no 1917 without the one shot gimmick. Well, that's like saying Avengers Endgame, you know, what would it be if you took out all the CG? Yeah. Uh, Okay. (laughs) So my deal with the thing being like the one shot gimmick thing is, is it a gimmick? Maybe it is. But to me, like there's other movies that I've enjoyed as much like gravity. Part of the enjoyment of gravity was seeing that, you know, in 3D and having that feeling like you were really floating out in space. And yeah, that's that's a gimmick, but it's still part of the enjoyment of the film that's being put in front of your face. Like the reason that the movie is constructed in one long take is because it's telling the story that way. And it's like that, that it's a magic trick. So to me, I was marveled by not the, not the story of it. I wasn't like, what a fantastic war story that really has deeply educated me on the horrors of world war one. Instead, I was like, what a crazy magic trick of a movie that follows these characters in real time from point A to point B. It's very, very simple. It has, um, it has suspenseful sequences. Ultimately, yes, it's a movie about somebody delivering a note. It's a movie, it's a, it's a movie about somebody passing a note and, and maybe the most dire situation imaginable, but I'm not as concerned about the, about the structure of the narrative as I am about the experience of the film. And I Mm. think this is one where the, some of the film fans, it's okay not to like it, but I think some of the film fans were so focused on its adherent, um, like adherence to telling a complicated story about world war one or, um, or something that they saw as trying to be lied to or tricked by the film's gimmick. And I'm like, it it it's all part and parcel. The movie is the journey. The movie yeah. is leaving out of one bunker and and making that trek for two hours to the foxhole you're supposed to deliver the note in. That's the film. So if you don't like that story or if you feel like it's a gimmick, then this isn't for you because that's what this is. Um, I I really enjoyed it. I don't know. Um, you know, I, I wasn't overly familiar with the actors. I think that there's a, um, I think if I have any knock on the film that I'm trying to not to spoil it. Um, there's a character that is, uh, you spend more time with one character than the other. Mm-hmm. And I, it wasn't like, it was a situation where I liked the interplay. Um, yeah. and, and I would have, I, I didn't know that we were going to kind of just be, you know, at some point um, dealing with a single character. And I don't know if, but that's kind of, you know, even that's kind of Monday morning quarterbacky of me. Cause that's, you know, that's nothing they can fix about the movie. It's just the way that it is. And, and it's almost a testament to it that I enjoyed their interplay so much and enjoyed going on the trip with both of them. Yeah. When one of them was removed from the equation that the movie lost a little bit for me. It's just more of a more of speaking to the actors themselves and that I liked I liked spending that time with them before things um changed. I agree with everything you said. I, I think this is a tremendously entertaining film. I disagree with some critics who've both said the criticisms that you you were exploring. I disagree with those criticisms. And I disagree with those who call it one of the greatest war films ever made. It's not. There's a lot of better war films than this. But 
Is there a war film that's as visually arresting as this film is? Probably not. It is definitely unexperienced and call the story elements gimmicky if you want. I didn't see them that way, but clearly they're not the primary focus of this film. Like I said, they're serviceable. They're a little tropey, but not annoyingly so. It gets you to where you need to be uh, to make this an exciting experience. And it is a very experiential film. And I do think it's well worth watching. And I think it's well worth watching in 4K, which is one of the options of the way you can get it. I mean, like I said, it's just beautiful looking and the 4k transfer uh, i mean it, it it's both audio and visual is you know 10 out of 10 uh, it's as good as you you're going to get it's a showpiece film for having a great home theater system yeah. no question about it uh, there's a decent amount of bonus features on here most of them relatively short uh, with a look at the screenwriting process uh a look at how they did the two the the consecutive shot illusion um the the movie all of it's put together in in sort of a, a like as if it was one documentary but you can watch it in like you can watch it where just play them all or you can watch them separately there's two different audio uh commentaries here one with Sam Mendez where he talks about apparently this came from like no one can really say whether or not this is a true story but his grandfather told him this as if it was and it might be. There's no real way to know for sure. So he talks about getting this from his grandfather's stories and multiple other things. The other one is from Roger Deakins. So if you're a fan of cinematography, man, Deakins is just a pleasure to hear discuss things. And he's not afraid of going technical. So if you're somebody who's really into that level of it, that, that makes this kind of a must own. Uh, now we have the big question. You know what the big question is, John? What's your pick of the week? What's your pick of the week? Okay, the pick of, my pick of the week is not even my favorite film on this list. I mean, we've talked about some like 16 Candles or you know that that are a perennial favorite or 1917 which almost cracked my top 10 list. Um, instead, my pick is going to, I'm picking this because it's underseen and it deserves a wider audience. So if, please don't if, save erotica. If me making this my, uh, if me making this my pick of the week means that, um, more people get to see and enjoy this film, then that is the, that is what I'm going to do. And so my pick of the week is just mercy. Wow. Okay. Again, there are movies on here I like more, but... You, you're you, such an underdog guy. You know, I'll pick the underdog. Well, 1917 doesn't need me to advocate for it, and 16 Candles as well. But I feel like there's any movie on this list that we've talked about today that's deserving of more eyeballs that, that didn't necessarily get them. It's Just Mercy. And it you know also what? has such you're... a generic title. It has. I yeah. had a hell of a time trying to remember the name of this movie. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, so, so Just Mercy. Sorry. No, I, you sold me. I was questioning you, but you know, when you started going into it, I'm like, okay, that's fair. <laughs> All right. Well, that wraps up this digital noise. And thanks to John. Don't this you was have an one? epic length one? What'd you say? What? Don't you have a pick of the week? No, I'm going with you. Just mercy. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah, cool. uh, you're right. That was the, that was the correct choice. <laughs> All right. Uh, is there anything going on online with you? Like, are you presenting uh, your, I know a lot of people are doing theater and comedy stuff online for people to see. Are you doing anything like that right now? I am not. I'm taking the tentative steps towards, um, towards writing my first comic. I'm doing like a, um, like a one page illustrated, like pitch page that sort would be sort of like almost like an ad for the comic that doesn't exist. Um, and then I think I'm going to start writing scripts for that pretty soon. It's an idea I've had for a while. 
it's um yeah it's it'll be interesting it's <laughs> it'll be interesting to see if i go i i have to say it all out loud enough to be held accountable to actually completing the work so i'm going to say it here i am working on my own comic we'll see where it goes okay i can't wait to see it uh and you are doing the writing for that or the drawing or both i'm, I'm gonna i hope to just be the writer i don't necessarily want to draw it but i'm drawing a um like a nine panel sort of pitch page it'll it kind of tells one complete story and it lets you know what I want the comic to be about. So it reads as a page. It reads as a page of the comic, but it, it's almost like an ad. And okay. I've, I've already started work on that. All right. That sounds great. Well, let us know when, when it's out there I so people will, can pick it up. They can follow me on Twitter at Golson, G-H-O-L-S-O-N, if they want to see it when it finally does exist. Right on, brother. Well, I hope you stay safe and I hope everyone else out there stays safe. Stay inside. There's no end of entertainment to keep you in there. I don't want to hear any of that. I'm so bored. How are you bored? There's just an endless amount of entertainment online, even just completely 100% for free, much less if you pay for any streaming services, uh, free books, free movies, free comics, all sorts of stuff. Don't be bored. If you've seen everything that you know you wanted to see, then start exploring things you don't know as much about and look into those things. Now is the time when you start going, hey, I'm going to learn about a whole section of like entertainment that I never really looked into before. Now's a, a great opportunity to expand your width, the width and breadth of your uh, experience with art. So stop complaining. 